Hello, everybody. Hey, Happy Scott. Monday. <laughs> yeah, so we're back to Isaiah today. And to Patty, today's gonna we're gonna finish Isaiah today. Is oh my that gosh! Something? Oh my gosh! It's gonna happen. We're at Isaiah chapter sixty-six, um, sort of a compilation of messages from God. And um, then when we get back, we'll be gone for two weeks, right? Yes. We'll miss two Mondays. And then when we're back, we will um, start with First Thessalonians. That sounds great. A little five-chapter letter from Paul. A lot different than 66 chapters of Isaiah. So is there a little book like that you would recommend to somebody, a book of the Bible, that they could read on their own? over the next two weeks that wouldn't have that much like crazy stuff that you know somebody needed an interpreter <laughs> which sometimes mm. you are for us um, philippians philippians that's it you okay. can read philippians every month for the rest of your life and wow the, and it's just it's really a it's really a very special letter oops sorry you know so yeah so that's what that that's my answer to your okay. question Four, and, cha four chapters. And if you wanted to read like the next week, one other one, what one in the Old Testament? I think I'm going to guess for you because I know you love the story. Ruth. That'd be a good one. The story of Ruth. Right? Yeah. Yep. It's not complicated. Not complicated. And um, yeah, yeah, it's just a good story. Wherever you go, I will go. Your yes. God will be my God. Yes. yes. There's a lot of those um, famous Bible sayings that we know, but, you know. Yep. All righty. So here we are, a beautiful Monday, fall-like day. I got out and walked this morning. It was so cool. It was. It was. It wasn't even chilly. It was 57 when I when I hit the streets of Frisco, <laughs> <laughs> but there was sun and there was no wind, and that makes it all perfect. I mean, it was just. I actually felt invigorated when I finished. Well, that was great. So that was good. That was yeah. great. So that was super. And we leave for Israel on Sunday, so keep us in your prayers. Yes, please do. And the rest of the group, it's actually 89 total that we are because just the way things worked out at yeah. the end. Um, One couple had to drop out at the end. And the next person in line was a single, so that's how we have to But I'm going to keep calling it 90. Oh, yeah, we are. Right. Sure, sure, really. sure. I like round numbers. And someone may show up at the airport, you know. That you never know. Cal <laughs> so. may bring somebody at the last minute. That's Beats right. me. That's right. Okay, so. well, anyway. Do you have anything else, Patty? I don't. I don't. I okay, don't. well, we're going to plunge in then, because okay. I said we're going to finish today, and by golly, we're going to. Yeah, I knew we were on 66. I already put a little note, but I didn't know we were going to finish it all. I think we will. Okay, I great. You will find that, given our experience, not that we're experienced readers of this great scroll, so much of this will seem, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, I understand that. Sure, okay. got it. Awesome. Ready? I am. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we are grateful. For this beautiful day, we're grateful that we can still come together online like this to study your word. And as we come to the end of the book of Isaiah, just um, fill us with energy and enthusiasm, but also um, a good memory, a good remembering of this journey through Isaiah. And, and fill us with uh, some determination to kind of go back through it on our own and just just refresh ourselves about all of the really magnificent passages that are in Isaiah. Uh, for they do point us inevitably to your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. All righty. Okay. I'm going over to my side. So Patty's going to go back around. Um, 
I'll straighten out the camera and we are good. So we are we are at six, in Isaiah 66. And remember last week we are in the great chapter 65, the new heavens and the new earth and this unrolling and the links to Micah and the links to Revelation and it's just all marvelous. You kind of thought to yourself if you're like me that wow, this great scroll of Isaiah probably should have ended there, but it didn't. Um, we don't really know how the scroll in its final form came to be, what editors there were or compilers there were, or when specifically certain pieces might have been appended or anything to it. We, we just don't know. The scroll comes to us as it comes. And um, when we get to the end today, I'm going to show you that not only do we have some of those wonderings, about the ending of Isaiah, but the Jews do as well. So that that's a teaser. So let's start at chapter 66, um, which is largely a connection collection of these oracles, right? These, these are these independent sections, um, but they will all sound familiar. They, they really do today. They all sound familiar. Remember the themes we've had. Um, God calls his people to faithfulness. He... Um, uh, is very direct about those who worship pagan gods and goddesses, those who would turn away from the weak and the oppressed and, and, and the poor, very hard on them. Um, and this other idea of what's typically called the ingathering of the nations, calling the nations to, to Zion, because, of course, to Jerusalem, because it was, this whole project was about all humanity being made right with God, not just the Jews. None of this is just for the Jews. Just as the coming of Christ is not just for you and me, it's God wants the whole world to embrace Jesus. So... There we go. So look at um, Isaiah 66, verse 1. This is what Yahweh says. So the prophet speaks and brings the word of God. Heaven is my throne, says God, and the earth is my footstool. Where's the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? And so they came into being, declares the Lord. Well, yes, that's true. God made everything, called it into being. So on the one house, the people do, on the one hand, the, his people do build him a house. That's the tabernacle slash temple. But on the other, it's presumptuous that we can provide anything to God. Right, like that. Um it's God's hand that made all the things, all the things in this world. We are merely stewards or trustees of this world. Um, it, it is God who created it and God who got it all going and God who provided the world um, with its substance and, and, and purpose. So the God says then, these are the ones I will look on with favor. So, who will he God look on with favor? No surprise. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit, that means aware of one's 
failings, contrite in spirit, and who tremble at my word. Now, tremble is a funny thing. You know, we're, we're supposed to love God and love neighbor, but we can't ever forget that, that God is God and we are not. And um, it is an aw awesome thing to be given God's word. The one thing that happens to the prophets of Israel is that they, when they experience God's presence, they are often simply overwhelmed. It's like they shake in their bones. Um, uh, there's an old name given to it, the tremendum mysterium, to, dis, to talk, try to talk about what happens to the prophets and what they experience and what they then try to put into words. And I don't think we should find it at all off-putting in that way. Maybe if you reduce God to just your buddy, you know, maybe you would find it off-putting that God would say, you need to tremble at my word because, you know, I'm God. But we shouldn't be, be put off by that. And when I was reading this and preparing for this, of course, I come to this, I look with favor those who were humble and contrite in spirit, and I thought of the book of Micah again. So let's go back there. We were there last week when we looked at chapter 65. This, So let's go back, not to Micah 4 this time, but to Micah chapter 6. Verse 6. Famous passage. And we're going to talk about this for a second because this is going to come up again in a bit here. So while you're finding it, Micah 6, 6. God gave the people a system of sacrifice, animal sacrifices, blood sacrifices in some cases, in order to enable them, and God to dwell with them in some way. It was, it's, um, but it's, but it was temporary. It was like a crutch or something or a bandage or a splint. It didn't really fix the gulf between God and humanity, but enabled God to live with his people and this whole system of sacrifices. That's in the law of Moses. On the At the same time, God gave them a lot of ethical instruction about how they were to live with one another. How, you know, how to, loving your neighbor is from the book of Leviticus in the law. So what does that look like? And in the law of Moses, and we find in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and repeated in Deuteronomy are a lot of examples of love being actually put into practice, right? So those are the two things, this, this, this system of sacrifices and the system of ethics, and they go together. Now, you tell me which one you think God is really after. Knowing Jesus, which of these two things is God really after? It's God's ultimate purpose, the system of sacrifice, or just God's ultimate purpose for us to really come to put into practice and understand what, what, what love is. Well, of course, it's the second one. It's the second one, sure has to be. And here we see in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 6, 
this spelled out from a time 700 we are 700 years before Jesus that's when Micah lived that's when the the that's when this scroll was written with what shall I come before the Lord before Yahweh and bow down before the exalted God shall I come before him before God with burnt offerings that's part of the sacrificial system with calves a year old that's part of the sacrificial system Will Yahweh be pleased with thousands of rams all offered to God? You see what a great sacrificer I am. With 10,000 rivers of olive oil all sacrificed to God, all given to God, shall I even offer my firstborn child for my transgression? Oh, golly the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. I mean, that's the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. But no. Verse 8. Mm -mm. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does Yahweh require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. So if you don't have those, the sacrifices avail you of nothing. They're just a, they're just a splint. They're like a, they're, they're like a sun shield or something, or whatever you want to come up with the way of analogy. They aren't, they aren't the point. The point is for us to live in love with God and in love with others. Not in love in a romantic sense. I mean, within love, <laughs> immersed in love, um, with God and with others. So, that's really, I think, um, oh man, that's not right. I've got to make your way back to Isaiah now. I had a magic button that I thought would take me right back to where I was, but it failed. <laughs> not so magic. <laughs> not so magic. Right? So, go back to the middle of verse 2, and I think now we'll get that. Because if we don't talk about that... I mean, this is, this is seemingly odd, given the whole sacrificial system set up in Exodus. The priests, all of that. I mean, when Jesus was a boy, when Jesus was a man, he would come to Jerusalem for the proper sacrifice at the major festivals. And those sacrifices were blood sacrifices. Paula Fredrickson, a New Testament scholar, does a great job of painting this picture of the city, you know, smelling like a giant barbecue oh. and the smoke just piling towards the sky from the temple as, as the smell of blood just wafting over the city as the animals are sacrificed by the hundreds and even thousands and, and, and burned. And it's just... It's just something that we, gratefully, I think, have trouble connecting with. And it was a system that God put in place to enable God to dwell with these sinful people. Um, but it wasn't the solution. That would, of course, be Jesus. So even here, though, these are the ones I look on with favor in Isaiah 66, those who are humble, those who are contrite in spirit, those who tremble at my word, but whoever sacrifices a bull is like one who kills a person. 
they were instructed to sacrifice. So what does what does the what is the prophet saying? He's saying that if you try to think that the sacrificial system will is something you can rely on in the absence of being humble and contrite and trembling at God's word, of being faithful to God and faithful to others and looking after the poor, protecting the widows and orphans and, and letting justice roll down like streams of water. If you think that the sacrificial system alone is what God's after, you are wrong, wrong, wrong. Thus, whoever sacrifices a bull is like one who kills a person. Whoever offers a lamb is like one who breaks a dog's neck. Whoever makes a grain offering is like one who presents pig's blood. Oh, that's the worst, right? I mean, you put the word pig anywhere in the Old Testament and you know that you are at a place that would just send the Jews running for the hills. Pigs were this kind of like the perfect example of, of the unclean, not only because they were on the list of unclean animals, but if you've ever seen pigs wallowing in the mud and eating in their disgusting way, well, you know what I mean. And whoever burns memorial incense is like one who worships an idol. They have chosen their ways and they delight in their abominations. You can't rely on the sacrificial system alone. The reason, you, the, what happens is, when you rely on the sacrificial system alone, what happens? It's so easy for that to have turned into pagan worship for the Israelites. Because you see, their pagan neighbors knew all about these things. The, the system of sacrifices and priests and altars and all this stuff, that wasn't unique to the Jews. You found that in the cultures that lived around them. What, what set the Jews apart was the ethical system to which the sacrificial system was married. So you, you strip away the ethical system and what you're left with is this sacrificial system and it quickly goes wrong. It, and so you're, you're just set up then to begin building Asherah poles, Asherah being one of the pagan goddesses of the area, the um, worshiping Astarte, worshiping Baal, building pagan temples, um, building pagan gardens, all that stuff. It's and that's all abominations to God, all abominations to God. And so. Um, God then says, I also will choose harsh treatment for them and will bring on them what they dread. They think that the system of sacrifices, whether it's to God or to Baal or anybody else, is what they need to appease the angry God. Um, I was just looking at something online yesterday, maybe, and they have uncovered, I think, in ice, a couple of thousand-year-old Incan girl who had been sacrificed. Ooh. Yes, to appease the gods. It was that the idea of blood sacrifice is is common in ancient cultures around the globe. 
around the globe. Um, and it was practiced by cultures and religions around the ancient Israelites. Um, but they did not. God, God never instructed them to sacrifice humans. They, animals, yes. The best animals, yes. Grain offerings, yes. But, um, but never people. Okay? Verse 4. So I also will choose harsh treatment for them and will bring on them what they dread. And here's, here it is. Next, next line. For when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, no one listened. So right there, let's, let's make one quick side trip in the book of Isaiah. Go back to Isaiah chapter 6. Whoops. Okay, Scott. You know, in some ways, the iPad is helpful, but I am not as fast on the iPad as I am pages of the Bible. So, I'll set the scene while you're finding your way back to Isaiah chapter 6, verse 6. So, this is the great call scene in the book of Isaiah. We were there months ago. <laughs> months ago. And Isaiah has this vision of the throne room of God and the, the doorway of there are seraphim, these winged creatures who are flying around over the altar singing, holy, holy, holy. And in verse 8, then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I, this is Isaiah, said, Here I am, send me. Here, I'm, here, here I am, send me. The right response. If God calls you and to something, um, the response is yes. The right response is yes. Now you might say, well, Scott, well, how do I know if it's God calling me and not? Well, the way you do that is that you, you, want, you take your understanding of what God is calling you to do. You submit it to a good theologically informed reading of Scripture and the life that God calls us to. And you talk about it with your Christian friends who you trust. That that's how you can't you you know you can't wake up in the middle of the night and say well well God called me to do X and now I'm good, and then go charging off all by yourself to to do something I don't think that's really how God works we are too we're too vulnerable we 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 humans are so but here Isaiah the voice calls out whom can I send and Isaiah says here I am send me so. There's a great hymn with that. There is. Right there is there. a great hymn. Here am I, Lord. I've heard you calling in the night. Can you sing it for us, Betty? I don't sing well. I could say the words, but... <laughs> yeah, because you're the lyric savant, aren't you? Oh, yes. Okay, so go back to Isaiah 66. Okay. And, oh, it didn't work. My magic button failed again. Well, honey, I'd, I'd say stop using the magic button. <laughs> it's not working That's what she you. says. Okay, all right, Isaiah 66, I don't know, where are we? Whatever, verse 4, something like that. Okay, so, 
And we're in, we're in verse 4 of Isaiah 66, right in the middle. For when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, no one listened. They did evil in my sight and chose what displeases me. Right? What pleases God is good. What displeases God is evil. God is the creator of the good. When God creates everything, he pronounces it good, 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 all the way down the line in Genesis 1. Evil is the destruction of that goodness. Then in verse 5 then, there's a word, this is the word of the faithful. Hear the word of Yahweh, you who tremble at his word. Right? Your own people who hate you and exclude you because of my name have said, Well, let Yahweh be glorified that we may see your joy, yet they will be put to shame. Hmm, boy, there's a lot of directions you could go with that as a preacher. What I hear in this part is, um, it's easy to call to call on the name of Jesus. Easy. Easy to say it. Easy to 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 put on a big show of it. But our faith in Christ must be genuine and it must be grounded in the love of God and in the love of others. Um, and the people in this message here are in two groups, those who are faithful to God, those who are tremble at his word and are contrite in spirit and humble, and those who are not, who are heading off in all kinds of terrible directions and are listening to God when God calls them. They can mutter really good words. Let Yahweh be glorified that we may see your joy, yet they will be put to shame. Words are easy. Hear that uproar, verse 6. Hear that uproar from the city. Hear that noise from the temple. It is the sound of Yahweh repaying his enemies all they deserve. And in this case, who are his enemies? The Israelites who have turned away from God. These are not outside the family. These are the Israelites who have turned away from God. Um, we're going we're gonna to get to... Verse 4 then again, for these are the people for when I called, no one answered. There we go. Right. 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 Okay. Verse 7. Now this is going to be about God really coming through with Jerusalem and the people not being surprised. That in the midst of all the destruction and all the loss, remember because Jerusalem's been burned down, go back to go back to the, those parts of Isaiah. Jerusalem's been burned down and God is God is calling them home, calling, calling them home from Babylon. And of course, some of them are unlikely, I think, to want to come. Indeed, there are many who don't. 
And so here we go. Before she goes into labor, she gives birth. Huh? Before the pains come upon her, she delivers a son. Who has ever heard of such things? Who has ever seen such things? Can a country be born in a day? Or a nation be brought forth in a moment? Could Rome be built in a day? <laughs> well, the answer is no, unless it's God who's doing it, you see? That's that old saying, can Rome be built in a day? Well, well, no, unless God is the builder. Then of course it could be. So this is just a very poetic, colorful way of talking about, you're going to be, oh, people, you're going to be so surprised by what happens with Jerusalem. Do I bring to the moment of birth and not give delivery? says Yahweh. <laughs> you know, God is the great promise maker. God is the great promise keeper. God is God is the ultimate delivery guy. Do do I close up the womb when I bring up when I bring to delivery says your God, as in not letting you know this 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 new Jerusalem be born? No. Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice greatly with her, all you who mourn over her. For you will nurse and be satisfied at her comforting breasts. You will drink deeply and delight in her overflowing abundance. God says, I will deliver. Come home, I will deliver. And we've talked in here about the fact that, you know, okay, so most come back, but it just didn't seem like these promises had been kept as they should. And that is true all the way over the centuries until you come to the time of Jesus. When, when that question is, well, when will these promises really be kept? And that turns for many Jews into a desiring of God to bring a Messiah who will bring these promises to their fruition. That's where that, you know, sort of messianic fervor amongst many Jews comes from. Mm -hmm. So, any thoughts or questions, Patty, or anything like that? Uh, no, Scott. Um, I think everybody's just listening along. Just listening along. Okay. Verse 12. For this is what Yahweh says. I will extend peace to her. What's her? Who's her? Jerusalem. Like a river. And the wealth of nations like a flooding stream. You will nurse and be carried on her arm and dandled on her knees. Dandled. As a mother comforts her child, so will I comfort you, and you will be comforted over Jerusalem. <clears throat> let's, let's talk about something a minute in, in a minute, because, you know, one mistake we Christians can sometimes make in our theology is thinking that God has gender. God does not have gender. 
gender is part of the created order. In the Genesis 1, we're told God made, you know, the humans male and female. God, gender is part of the created order. God is neither male nor nor female. God is without gender. God is not created. God does not have a body, you know. Because these writings and the experience of the Israelites come out of very patriarchal cultures, most depictions of God in Scripture are of have a male gender sense to them. But you get some where no, it's not that way. It's a it, it's a motherly sense to them. Or Jesus talks about, you know, a hen, which, which is a, a female, gathering her chickens un, under her wings and so forth for protection. So verse 13, as a mother comforts her child, so will I comfort you, and you will be comforted over Jerusalem. Um, and so it's it's... You know, for me, I mean, I, I can't help but make it a little personal. I I guess we all do that when we come to the Bible, right? I mean, I'm a dad. I always enjoyed being a dad. I've been dad to three great sons um, over a long period of time because of the way my life unfolded and then, you know, marrying Patty and becoming Robbie's stepdad when he was a wee one. Um, I spread my adult, my dad rearing over about 40 years or so. So, but I learned that in a lot of that, it was also important to me to have the qualities of a good mom. Just was. And I think Patty is certainly, Patty, you see, not only the qualities of a good man, I mean a good mother, but she some sometimes has the qualities of a good father. It's, it's, and I think that is, I don't know, that's our experience in life. And certainly in Scripture, you find God who is the disciplinarian, God who is the creator and the maker, but then you find these places, and there are numerous ones, where God is the comforter. As a mother comforts her child, it's written in the scroll of Isaiah. When Jesus talks about the spirit who is coming after him, he describes the spirit as, a, as the comforter. Not just the advocate or the counselor, but a comforter who will come. And so I think you have to keep all that in mind and not, and not um, sort of fall back into sort of seeing gender in God because it will only get you off, it will only get you off track. God is without gender. And when I needed to be a pretty good mom to my kids, I was a pretty good mom to my kids, I think. Do you agree with that, Patty? I, I wasn't around then, but I know, I know from what I've heard from your sons that, yes, that is yeah. absolutely true. I did, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, verse 13, As a mother comforts a child, so will I comfort you, and you will be comforted over Jerusalem. Verse 14, when you see this, your heart will rejoice 
and you will flourish like grass. The hand of Yahweh will be known to his servants, but his fury will be shown to his foes. So all the way through Isaiah, there is this choice to be made. Do you want to be God's friend or do you want to be God's foe? And we live in a world and a time when people don't want to imagine that there is such a choice. But there is a choice. It's not an Old Testament thing. It's a biblical thing. It's as common in the New Testament as the Old Testament. The book of John is all about. you got to step out of the darkness into the light. In my pastoral prayer yesterday, I did a little, little quoting from 1 Peter. You know, about... God's people being called out of the darkness into God's marvelous light. There's no fence-sitting. There's no twilight. There's no gray area. There are these two categories. Are you God's friend or are you God's foe? And if you say that, well, I don't know. I'll see. I'll think about it someday. I'll get there. I promise. I'll get there right now. Just leave me alone. Then you're staying in the darkness because that's where we are because... Of, of human sinfulness, which nobody could really deny the reality of human sin. So these are the these are the friends or foes, and this has been all the way through Isaiah, of course. And which 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 choice does God want us to make? Well, obviously, he wants us to be his friends. Of course, <laughs> the hand of Yahweh will be made known to his servants. But his fury will be shown to his foes. See, the Lord is coming with fire, and his chariots are like a whirlwind. He will bring down his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. As in, Israelites, don't think that you have forever in this. For with fire and with his sword, the Lord will execute judgment on all people, and many will be those slain by the Lord. This is this big, in Isaiah, these big words of warning, very dramatically written, that in this choice between being God's friend and God's foe, being God's friend is the path to abundance and life, and being God's foe is the path to death and oblivion. And uh, like like the parent who screams at their child to stop running, screams at the top of their lungs with great fervor when their child runs into the street to call them back, these are words of warning. Because God wants people um, to appreciate that God loves them and and wants to be reconciled to them. I have a question. Sure. I, you know, I know that he is speaking somewhat metaphorically in these uh, verses, but I've heard this saying myself, and mostly in a Pentecostal way, that somebody was slain by the Spirit. And I see here where you know it says um, at the end of 16, um, and many will be slain many will be those slain by the Lord. Does that just mean not in his good graces or 
what are, what does hmm. it mean there in that slain by the Lord? I think it's a little signpost to something more like the second death that the book of Revelation talks about. Okay. Yes. Yes. So you think that's where people, well, I, I heard it in Mount Perrin uh, that people were slain by the Spirit when they could start talking in tongues. So it's, oh, uh, yeah, I've heard the expression too. Earth? I've always heard the expression too. But I don't really know what they mean by that. Slain by the Spirit. Um, maybe they mean, I mean, I guess theologically what you could mean is it's death to the old self and rebirth which all Christians right. experience. And if that's the case, then even for those at Mount Perrin, which is a Pentecostal church in in Atlanta, well, that could only be once. That's not going to happen every Sunday. So you couldn't be slain in the spirit every Sunday. I just kind of always thought it was this dramatic way to talk about, you know, these dramatic things going on in you that you believe God gave to you. Oh, I think I think it was only used there the first time it happened to you. Oh. Like that day you were able to speak in tongues, you were slain by so, the Spirit. But you, so if you spoke in tongues the next week, you wouldn't be slain by the well, Spirit. Well, it already had happened. Like you, like well, also you, maybe that is. Yes. Maybe, maybe in that sense then the slaying is the death to the old self. Okay. See, sometimes we can work these things out, can't we? Yes. <laughs> I don't know if we're right, but we're... <laughs> but that, that, don't think that's what's inside here. This is just a dramatic warning of the end that faces the foes of God. And it's, it's expressed in all sorts of different ways in Scripture. And it's not good. There is no life apart from God. And if you choose against God, in the end, if you choose against God you are choosing against life because God is the giver of life. God is the author of life. And if you if you walk away from God and you stay away from God and you shake your fist at God, then life will not be yours. So, okay. Anything from anybody out there, Patty? No. no. Okay. Well, let's go on. Verse 17. Now those who consecrate and purify themselves to go into the gardens. Okay, what's that? Those are pagan gardens. Those who consecrate and purify themselves to go into the pagan gardens. How do I know it's the pagan gardens? Well, we'll read on and we'll be very clear. <laughs> those who consecrate and purify themselves to go into the pagan gardens following one who is among those who eat the flesh of pigs. Ugh. There we know. Right? Okay. This is this is something no Jew would do. Rats and other unclean things, they will meet their end together with the one they follow, declares Yahweh. So you need to you need to think about who it is you follow. And who are we to follow? The Lord Jesus. Exactly. Tell yourself that every day. I am to follow Jesus. I am to follow Jesus. That's it. I am to follow Jesus. So here, these these folks are heading out of the pagan gardens and they are choosing to follow someone or their own way or wherever it might be, but it's it's away from God. It's like the two paths things we talk about. I talk about a lot. One path is God's way. 
the other path is not. One path leads to life, the other path leads to oblivion, since that's a word I'm liking to use today. Verse 18, this is God still. And I, because of what they have planned and done, am about to come and gather the people of all nations and languages, and they will come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them, and I will, this is the ingathering. So this is about bringing the nations all, all to God's mountain all to Mount Zion, to Jerusalem. I, this, is, this is Micah 4. I will set a sign among them, and I will send some of those who survive to the nations, to Tarshish, to the Libyans, and the Lydians, famous as archers, to Tubal and Greece. This is like to the far reaches of the earth, and to the distant islands. We haven't heard that one in a while in Isaiah, but that's Remember back in the early days, that was used a lot. And to the distant islands that have not heard of my fame or seen my glory, they will proclaim my glory among the nations, and they will bring all your people from all the nations to my holy mountain in Jerusalem as an offering to the Lord. And they'll do it on horses, they'll do it in chariots and wagons and on mules and camels, says Yahweh. So all of the distant, distant Israelites who have been scattered, the nations themselves are going to bring them all back to Jerusalem. Um, because remember, well, uh, two hundred and maybe let's call it two hundred and twenty years before this was written. Um, the kingdom, the empire of Assyria fell on the ten northern tribes of Israel and, and they were just scattered, never to be reconstituted as tribes or kingdoms, the ten lost tribes of Israel. So this is about, you know, God's people being reconstituted and God, the Israelites being brought together. What, what better word would there be in a scroll written for the Israelites? But it's not just that they're coming on their own. Who's bringing them? On horses and chariots and wagons and mules and camels. It's the people, it's these Gentile people who are bringing them, you see? They will bring them as the, as the Israelites bring their grain offerings to the temple of Yahweh in ceremonial clean vessels. And I will select some of them also to be priests and Levites, says Yahweh. So, you know, in its own way, I think, this, this little message right here in chapter 66 is, is a picture of, of a world that has been put right, in which the nations come streaming to Mount Zion, and they bring you know, the Israelite tribes and families are, are put back together. Okay.
We are coming right now to the end. I can't believe it. Yeah, it's kind of a funny chapter to me because it's, it's just this compilation of little bits and pieces, and 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 you're 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 hoping to build to a big ending, which was actually more like chapter sixty-five. But yeah, there we go. Kind of like tacked on <laughs> at the end. Well, but. wait till I show you what happens. Okay. So verse 22, as the new heavens and the new earth that I make will endure before me, that's chapter 65, declares Yahweh, so will your name and descendants endure. Right? That's the promise to the people of Israel. Yes. From one new moon to another, from one Sabbath to another, all mankind will come and bow down before me, says Yahweh. Well, that is like the finish of the whole story, right? That's like the end of the book of Revelation. I mean, the whole point has been for humanity to be reconciled to God. That's it. With that, it is the putting right what was ripped apart in the garden. When the humans rebelled against God, God set about to fix that. And this quick sentence is a picture of that. Being, being fixed, being restored. Because all of, from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, all mankind will come and bow down before me, says Yahweh. Wow. And they're going to bow down before Yahweh because, why? Because their relationship has been fixed with God. All the nations, all mankind, even drops the word nations out, all mankind, all humankind will come and be joined in the worship of God. That's very New Testament. That is very Revelation. That is very Philippians 2. That is, wow, what a perfect place for this scroll to end right there. But it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> Verse 24. Oh. So God keeps going, and they will go out when all the nations come, and they will go out and look on the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. The worms that eat them will not die. Those are worms are he's talking about are maggots, oh. of course, which emerge out of rotten, rotting flesh. The, mag the worms that eat them will not die. The fire that burns them will not be quenched. And they will be loathsome to all mankind. Wow. You know, you read this and I can't help but think, okay, we could probably have done without that last warning. Without that being the last thing in this great scroll of Isaiah. Why is the last verse of Isaiah just so grim? I you guess it's a one last try. Look, if you haven't gotten it by now. It's just, you know, now this, this dead body thing, this is a picture. Jesus talks about this kind of thing sometimes because what's in view here is this, this great burial ground and trash heap on the south side of the Temple Mount in the Valley of Hinnom, Gehana. 
and and bodies in there. They're they're dead, but they. What happens to bodies that are burnt? Well, after a while, they stop burning. Right. They're just but ash, just a ma- right. Well, yeah, because you're basically reduced to ash. But what if the body just is so disgusting, and the maggots are always there, and 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 the fire that's consuming the body is just always burning. That's a far cry from the way any of us want to imagine yes. the state of our bodies after our deaths. And let me tell you, it was so interesting when I was working on this because I discovered that when Jews read chapter 66 of Isaiah in synagogue, they don't end it there. I said, well, really? And then the writer said, not only that, when they print the book of Isaiah, they don't end it there. I said, really? Yes. So I went and I found my own copy of the Jewish Study Bible. There it is. Jewish Study Bible. And this, the, the text of the Jewish Study Bible is not the same exactly exactly um, as the text of our Old Testament. It is 99.9, but there are little differences, and here's one. So here's how the ending of Isaiah occurs in the Jewish Bible that is read in synagogues today. Let me make sure I got the right, okay, good good glasses. Okay, so here's here's how it goes. Let me start up in, in verse 23. I'll start in 22. And you'll see what's happening. For as the new heaven and the new earth, which I shall make, shall endure by my will, declares Yahweh. I need more light. So shall your seed and your name endure in new moon after new moon and Sabbath after Sabbath, all flesh, all mankind, all humankind shall come to worship me, said the Lord. Then verse 24, the grim part. They shall go out and gaze on corpses of the men who rebelled against me. Their worms shall not die, nor their fire be quenched. They shall be a horror to all flesh. Now that's actually where the ancient text of Isaiah ends. But in the Jewish Bible, it goes on. And new moon after new moon, and Sabbath after Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship me, said the Lord. Amen. So, even the Jews themselves realize that, that these scrolls are a challenge. And They choose to end the great scroll of Isaiah on, in words that focus on the worship of God rather than the grimness of these maggot-ridden, burning bodies. So, wow. I just thought that was pretty, pretty darn cool. And... um I'm going to have some homework to do because in the study notes here around this, it said there are a couple other places in the Hebrew Bible where that is done in practice. What they do in practice is they, they, they repeat 
part of a verse at the end so that the last words on the scroll are not are not grim but instead filled with hope and worship so isn't that interesting wow so scott do you think like the the scrolls that um isaiah that jesus would have stood to read would they have had the the grim ending Mm, that is well it would have had the grim ending because it's there but the question would they have gone on to read back the beginning of the new the new moon part right as the ending so you get to the end of the scroll and then the reader would recite this from from one new moon to another one sabbath to another all mankind will come and bow down before me says yahweh and i don't know i bet so i i don't know it, it, it all i could find is that that is done today it's done in the text of this of the hebrew bible as it's used today um I, maybe I'll look around and see if I can find an answer to the question. But I sort of get why they do that, really, because, you know, God is a God of hope. And um, I think particularly when you're reading Scripture in in public, you want to try to, 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 craft, to craft a section that ends with a piece of hope or, or good news, not just not just grim, and leave it all there because our message to people is not grim. Even the words of warning, they're made in love, but the, the good news is good news. It's filled with hope. So anyway, I just found that as interesting as all get out, to be honest with you. And then when I looked it up in this Jewish study Bible, and lo and behold, there it was, printed, printed that way, I said, wow, Okay, learn something new every day. So that, my friends, is the scroll of Isaiah. And it's quite a journey. When I look back, the only portions that we abbreviated were the portions in, you know, the chapters in the 20s, which are all just about the judgment on one foreign nation after another but it's because they get so repetitive and you don't really it's hard to get much out of them otherwise you know we've been through we've been through we've been through it all we went through isaiah 6 with the great call that we looked at today um we went through the great story in isaiah maybe 42 or so something like that mocking the the pagan idols talking about the fellow who's gone out to the woods and gathered together firewood and has a piece of firewood and half of it he uses to make an idol that he's actually going to bow down and worship to and the other half he uses as firewood because that's just that's just absurd, right? So there's all these really creative, well-known pieces of Isaiah. And then in chapter 40 remember that's that's where the big break is when you come to chapter 40 verse 1 it's like turning a really big page and chapters 1 to 39 come from the time of Isaiah 700 years before Jesus beginning in chapter 40 it probably comes from the time of the exile someone writing um, in the school of, uh, of Isaiah and they are messages of profound hope 
in the darkest period in Israel's history during the Babylonian exile. Um, and Isaiah 40, those opening verses. Um, let's go ahead and go there. I have a few more minutes. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 40. These are the verses. Okay, Scott. It's hard to do this and talk at the same time. Got to get my finger to land on the right place. Isaiah chapter 40. These are the verses that begin the great oratorio Messiah by Handel. Charles Jennings is the name of the man who put the, 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 uh, the libretto together, put the lyrics together. Handel just did the music. So Charles Jennings put together this long, this long piece of work, all of which is drawn from Scripture. And he called it Messiah, and then Handel put it all to music. And so Charles Jennings is the one who began this um, story of the Messiah in chapter 40, verse 1. And so that's a place to always keep a mental marker. Um, you could go forward into Isaiah 53. That's where you come to the suffering servant. Right? And when we come to Isaiah 53, there's just no way a Christian's going to read Isaiah 53 and not see Jesus in that. You know, it, it reminds you that we will read the Old Testament writings differently than our Jewish brothers and sisters. Because we read the Old Testament in the context of the New Testament. The New Testament must have the Old Testament. That's why we do have it. You're not going to understand most of the New Testament without the Old Testament preceding it because you need to know what the story is leading up to Jesus. He is the fulfillment of, of what we find in the Old Testament. But the Old Testament is read in light of, in the light of Christ. And we see that the Old Testament points us everywhere. Big, big signpost, little signpost points us to Jesus. And um, as I said when we started this journey, that Isaiah has probably been the most influential Old Testament writing in terms of shaping Christian theology. Almost, almost being read as Christian scripture in just place after place after place after place. Um, because the New Testament is so dependent upon it. Deuteronomy also, but I think Isaiah in a more deeply, more deeply theological way. So, okay. Anybody got any final questions or anything y'all would like to talk about before we uh, finish up this journey through Isaiah? You got anything, Patty? I don't. I'm, I'm really glad that we did it, and I'm grateful for your help through it all. Remember who kept pushing to do this? I, Rich Morgan, and he's he's online today. And so, Rich, thanks for kind of pushing it, because yep. I don't know if he would have ever done it. And so it was it was good, and, and now it's all recorded for posterity. It is. <laughs> Podcasted for the world. Okay. Well, gosh. All right, then. Well, I'm going to ask Patty to come over, and Patty will uh, will 
close us in prayer today. And when we come back in, well, it's November 7th. That's our next meeting. Yes. November 7th, we will begin our journey through Paul's letter, 1 Thessalonians, which is which vies with Galatians for the privilege of being known as the oldest of Paul's letters in the New Testament. Something for Thessalonians, something Galatians, but it's a very, very early letter written probably no more, maybe not even 20 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. So. All righty. It's over to you, Patty. Okay. I just can't see my... Well, let's just fix the camera then. Okay. There we oh, go. Wow. wow. There we are. <laughs> I'm getting pretty good at swiveling this. If I kept doing it, I'd make everybody be kind of, kind of semi-drunk out there or something, I think. Make their head spin. <laughs> Thank you, everybody, for staying on this big, long journey with us. It was, um, I think it was well worth the time, really. And um, it's funny. We have people that we'll see in church on Sunday who will say, see you Monday night. Yeah. And... It's because they still wait till it's posted and watch it on Monday well, nights. Well, some of them work during the day. So, yes, of course. Right? Some so people are working. Yeah, are working. they can't. They can't do this at three right. o'clock. So, right. but they can join in it whenever they want to right. at their own leisure. Right. Because you know this all started at three because of COVID, because most people weren't working. And yeah, we, we had kept we had here. nowhere to go. Yes. And nothing to do. That's true. That's true. So. Um, anyway, we'll miss you guys while we're gone, and see you in. Um, yeah, actually, we'll keep see us in them your in prayers. Like three weeks by the time. By the time, yeah. time it comes back. Yes, please keep us in your prayers. Um, big group of us. I just pray everybody stays healthy and well, and um, that's that's my biggest prayer, and that people get a lot out of it. I know many of you who are with us today have been to Israel, and you know the life-changing difference that it makes, and. My prayer is just that all these people that are going with us for the first time have that. That's right. Yeah. So, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this trip through the book of Isaiah. And it became very clear to us why this is the most popular book, the most talked about, referred to in the New Testament, and obviously read by Jesus himself. So, we thank you, God, for this journey and um, we pray that it will help make us stronger Christians. I pray God that you would watch over all of us while we're separated for a few weeks. I pray God that you would bless us with good health and safety Lord and I pray for each of us that we could ask for your wisdom and discernment God in our lives every day to help us do the things we need to do to do the things that Jesus would be proud of us to do and to just become more Christ-like every day, Lord. We lift up all these prayers to you when we pray them all in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Okay. Adios, Bye. everybody. Bye, everybody. Enjoy the rest of your beautiful day. Yes. All couple days this week are going to be.